My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. I love art. I love to follow the, the, the beauty of what people have done throughout the centuries with art. Particularly, I love, I love certain eras. I love the impressionistic, post-impressionistic era of art, uh, primarily coming out of uh, France, Paris at the season, when you had people like uh, Renoir or uh, Gauguin or Degas, Monet, Van Gogh in particular. I love Van Gogh. I love that. Uh, This is a a, a Gauguin painting right here that he did in the late 1800s. There's something about it. It, it, It's it's different than what we do today. Huge paint strokes, lots of paint, thick paint. And um, I, I just, there's something for me that I'm, I'm just caught up into that. And I will stop in, and usually when I would be going to Africa, I would hub through a place, and I would just stop and find the artwork. I'd go to a museum. And, you know, it was just a, a wonderful time. I haven't done much of that lately, but I was in New York not long ago, and um, and just kind of passing through, and it's like, hey, I have enough time to go uh, to the Museum of Modern Art, and I can go see Starry Night. You know, I had never seen Starry Night in person by Van Gogh, and it's like, I want to go. And so I ran, I ran, I like, I ran, and I I got in a half hour before closing, and the guy said, we're going to close. And, and I said, I just want to go see Starry Night. And he was insulted because there's a whole lot of other stuff there. And I said, but that's all I have time for. And, and so he goes, go in. He let me in for free. And I went in and came back down. And I said, yeah, I got my fill. But he goes, come back. So I, I came back later and enjoyed it with my wife and saw a lot more art. There's something about art that expresses the beauty of what God has put inside of us. But it also can express the tragedy of the world around us. Take Gauguin, for example. He, in the late 1800s, uh, I mean, he was doing really well. He was married, had five kids. He was a successful stockbroker in Paris. And, and according to all the ways you would measure life, all the arrows were going up. Everything was good. He was successful. But as he got into art, dealing art, and then doing his own art, he, he realized that he wanted to break free, and he wanted to become his own man. And he felt that if he could just throw away all the confines, the trappings of modern society, he would finally be free and be able to reach the depths of true art. So he left his wife. He left his children. He renounced his country. He walked away from his faith, pushed aside everything, and he moved to Tahiti. And he thought, if I could just go to paradise, in paradise... I will find true beauty. I'll leave civilization as we know it. I'll leave all the confines of what mankind has done to create this system. And I will find perfection. I'll find utopia there. And he didn't find that. As he landed on the island, as he began working and painting with those natives that were there, he discovered that there was sin 
there was disease, there was violence, there was destruction, there was death. Everything that he left, Paris, was right there in front of him. It was maybe, quote-unquote, less civilized in people's eyes. But he discovered that that's in the heart of mankind. And no matter where you go, there you are, right? And he even tried to kill himself because he was so discouraged and depressed because of this. And he wasn't even successful at that, right? He did some paintings. He made his way back. But he died. He died destitute because he wanted to reach the ideal humanity where there was no religion, no government, no industry, no anything that would trap and just find pure humanity. And in that pure humanity, he found evil and brokenness. And, and the reason is because is in each one of us, uh, you can run to the end of the highway and still not find what you're looking for because you bring brokenness and sin along the way. And, you know, you and me, we, we work so hard at trying to carve out our existence that's what we do as humanity, Western civilization. We're so good at it. We work hard to create an identity and existence, and we live within that, and we try to measure ourselves and find value, and we try to understand it. And many times it just doesn't work the way we thought it should work. It's, it doesn't deliver on the promise that we would hope. And so we get frustrated. And as people who go to church, we get frustrated with God because God doesn't deliver in the way we think God should deliver. God's not fair. God's not just. We do all these things and God doesn't show up the way we want. And so we can even get mad or disappointed or angry at God because God is supposed to work a certain way because we think somehow as the creation, we figured out the creator. Our small little shallow minds think that we've grasped the totality of creator God. But that's just not true. In fact, the Apostle Paul said it so well. He said in Romans chapter 11, oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and ways. For who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to give him advice? I, I think there are a lot of people on the earth that would love to give God some advice, right? I've had that in my, in my life. God, could you just sit down? Because I want to tell you a few things that I think you've missed, right? Who has given him so much that he needs to pay it back? Well, I have. I mean, I go to church every weekend. Of course, I have to. I'm a pastor. I go to all three services, you know. Uh, but, but, but to strip that aside, you know, I, I attend church. I pray. I read my Bible. I drop some money in the offering. I do some good things for people, you know. So, therefore, God... You owe me something because I've done some good things for you. And that's kind of how the relationship works, right? Well, that's what we think. For everything comes from him and exists by his power and is intended for his glory. In other words, it's not about us at all. It's about him. And I don't like that. And you don't like that either because we want it to be about us. Because <laughs> everything in our world, everything in our culture says it should be about us. Everything should be about us, right? The whole world we live in, it's like, focus on me. I was reading a, a little story how people who, you know, run establishments on beaches, whether they're resorts or bars, restaurants, um, they're just getting tired of all these so-called, you know, self-made Instagram influencers who want a free ride to everything. And they put out ads going, just don't even show up because I don't care about your Instagram crowd because I need to make money. You know, but everybody shows up, and goes, but, but, but you don't know the following that I have. I'm important. Boy, if, if I show myself or 
excuse me, my legs on your beach as it looks out at the ocean or the drink I'm drinking or the sand between my toes, man, then you'll be wealthy and then people will show up as if life is about us. That's our culture. And God says, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about him. And we grasp that. But if we do, we, man, we get frustrated with that because we want life to make sense. And sometimes we look at God and go, but God, you're not doing a very good job. Now, I can say all these things because I'm just being honest. Lightning's not going to hit me. I'm in church. I'm safe. You know, <laughs> you're in church. Let's be honest, people. I know you've been disappointed with God. I know things haven't worked out the way you wanted. Uh, for some of you, it, it's your marriage. It didn't work out the way you wanted. For some, that you're not married and you want to be married. Some were married and have given up and you want to get married again, right? Or your dreams haven't measured to the level that you thought they should. And you had so many great hopes and they just haven't delivered. And it's frustrating. And we can easily look up at the sky and we can shake our fist and we can cry and go, God, you know, after all I've done, can I just tell you how you should do it? And the Apostle Paul says, we're not the creator. <laughs> and it's not about us. It's about him. That's hard for us to grasp because everything in our culture screams, we're supreme. We're the most valuable. We're the most important. Gauguin could not deal with the reality of God and the world being bigger than he imagined. He wanted to live life on his own terms. He wanted to live life with his own expectations in mind. And yet somehow God and creation did not bend down to his will. And it won't bend down to your nor my will. In the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes is what we've been studying here uh, over the last number of months. And we'll wrap up here in about a month. Um, we've been seeing this guy named Solomon who was wise beyond all wisdom. And yet when he pursued life apart from God, he discovered that it was empty and meaningless. And it frustrated him. And he came back and wrote about it. Solomon then tries to give us a perspective on life, a perspective on the world as human beings that God doesn't work the way we want him to work. Life doesn't work the way we want it to work. Life under the sun, that's his code phrase for uh, this world. It doesn't always make us happy. It, bad times are actually good for us, and suffering actually can make us grow. But Solomon says, but there is a God who steps down into this world to give us wisdom for the short years that we live on the planet. And only in him can life truly begin to make sense. But it won't always be fair. We're in chapter 9, and so if you have a uh, Bible, Ecclesiastes 9, we're going to put the screens up on there, and I want to begin reading, and we're working our way through this. We'll be done, like I said, in about a month, but he's in chapter 9, and he's still in the depressing part, so sorry if you showed up um, thinking it's going to get happy. In a couple weeks, it gets happy, but we're still depressed. In fact, I was talking to a pastor, uh, you know, when pastors get together, you know, they ask questions like, what are you preaching? What are you studying? And I go, I'm preaching Ecclesiastes. They're like, oh, how's that going? I go, not well. It's Ecclesiastes. Have you read it? <laughs> but actually, it's great because it's a reminder that life is not fair and it doesn't always go the way we want it to go. But God is still good. And when we follow him and submit to him, he does great things in our lives. So here we go. This, too, I carefully explored. Even though the actions of godly and wise people are in God's hands, no one knows whether God will show them favor. The same destiny ultimately awaits everyone whether righteous or wicked, good or bad, ceremonially clean or unclean, religious or irreligious, 
Good people receive the same treatment as sinners, and people who make promises to God are treated like people who don't. Solomon goes on a search to make sense of the world, and it's not making sense. Because you'd think that people who love God have, you know, one up on other people, right? And it's not the case. You can be the godliest person to live, the most righteous person, do all the righteous things, all the worshipful things, and you still are struck with tragedy, just like someone who's the biggest sinner in the room. And we all know who you are, right? Life isn't fair. Life is not fair. I remember this with my boys um, when they were younger, and it kind of came back to me uh, on Friday. I took the guys on the way to school to, we were going to go to Dutch Brothers, and absent-minded, I'm just driving along talking, and I realized I passed Dutch Brothers. We were going to get some hot chocolate. I was like, oh, no, what are we going to do? Well, let's just stop and have a donut day. So we go in to have a donut day, and um, we pull in there, and we all get a donut and say, hot chocolate for everybody. Our, our machine's not working. I'm like, well, that's kind of the whole reason I came here. And so we go to the, the refrigerator and get a, a, you know, a chocolate milk and a, and, a, and a milk, and I'm like, get some cups. And I'm, I'm, I'm standing there. I'm like, this PTSD moment from their childhood shows up. You know when you're a parent and you've got three cups or five cups lined up, and you've got to pour it accurately? You know that, that feeling where it's like, oh, no, everything could fall apart in this moment. I could lose complete control if it's not absolutely perfect and fair, right? And it's kind of funny because that moment shows up, and I'm pouring, and they're all looking at me, even though they're older. They're teenagers now. It shouldn't matter. And I'm, like, pouring it around. I'm looking, at it. It's like, pour a little more. I grab some of mine. I pour. It's like, oh, okay, I think I'm okay. Nobody said anything. Let's just eat our donut, right, and do our little Bible study. And um, I remember when they were younger— and, you know, we all do this. I did this with my sister and brother. We kind of fight over what's fair and it's not fair. I used to pop off with this statement that I don't think they appreciated, but made me feel good. Um, I said, you know, fairness ended in the garden. That's it. It's like, you might want to write that down, moms and dads. It's pretty good, actually. Fairness ended in the garden. After Genesis 3, there's no more fair. In fact, you don't want fair. You don't want fair. Back in Genesis 1 and 2, everything was perfect and everything was fair and everything worked. Fairness ended in the garden because now we're broken. Now life is broken. Now the world is broken. Our hearts are broken. Everything is broken, right? And we just try to get some amount of fairness, but there's nothing that's fair. Can I tell you the most unfair thing, the biggest injustice isn't how we're treated, but it's how we treated Jesus Christ. The Bible says that God so loved you, the world, you and me, that he gave his only son, Jesus Christ, that Jesus came to the earth, lived a perfect life, did ministry, and went to a cross and died on that cross. That's injustice at its peak, that the sinless, perfect son of God would go to the cross and die a criminal's death. Why? For you and for me, to take your sin, my sin upon himself, to bear the weight of the sin that we have been accumulating all our lives, that we're born into, that we flesh out through our entire existence, and Jesus willingly took it on the cross, and he paid the price and said, it's finished. That's not fair. That's not fair. But he did that. He did that so he could open up a way to one day we, it could all work out again so that we could walk in peace with God and one another. And one day, heaven on earth will show up where we are no longer in the garden of Eden, but we're in the city of God in the future. So as we think about this, people, man, we get frustrated, right? Because I think I, I know I do this, and I, I'm, if, if you don't do this, then you're better than me, and that's fine. Send me an email and let me know you're better than me. Um, but I go to church, and I get up every morning, and I read my Bible, and I pray, and I give, and I sacrifice. 
And if I'm not careful, I think that makes me immune to the troubles of the world. And then the troubles of the world show up, and I'm like, come on, God, after all I'm doing for you. Now, I never say that because that'd be silly, right? Because then I'd realize what I'm saying is pretty stupid. But I think that sometimes. There's a really bad error going around in the church. It's a false gospel called the Health, Wealth, and Prosperity Gospel. And it basically says, if you really have faith, if you really pray, if you really love God, then you'll have health. There will be no sickness. There will be no disease. If you really believe the message, then you'll be wealthy and you'll drive a Bentley. You'll, you'll, you'll live in the biggest house, the nicest clothes. You're going to prosper. And, and send me $1,000, by the way, on that one, right? I, when, I, when I venture to East Africa, it breaks my heart to see prosperity gospels move around and con people out of what little they have. And it makes me angry because that's not what Jesus was about. Jesus was about salvation. That's a free gift. There's a false gospel that's out there. And I think to some degree, we still believe it in our hearts because we think that if we do everything right, God owes us. And God doesn't owe us. That's not how life works. But we can be confident that he's a loving father, that he cares for us. And that as a loving father, he wants to provide our needs. If you're here today and your life's a mess, you know, welcome to the family. You know, the fact is, is your faith in a heavenly father is what can sustain you. Your faith in his son, Jesus Christ, for salvation is what can give you life. And your faith in his Holy Spirit that comes into your life and energizes you to live the life out can once again prove that God loves you. Solomon goes on in verse 3 to 4. He says, it seems so wrong that everyone under the sun suffers the same fate. I agree. It seems so wrong, right? Already twisted by evil, people choose their own mad course for they have no hope. There is nothing ahead but death anyway. Thanks for encouraging me, Solomon. Yeah. There is hope only for the living. As they say, it's better to be a live dog than a dead lion. Now, I don't say that, but I guess they did. Um, Okay, what's going on here? First of all, again, put it in context. Solomon is writing in the Old Testament time period. We know there's a thing called progressive revelation that God revealed things over time. And by the time the New Testament comes, there's Jesus is talking a lot about the afterlife and about heaven and hell. Solomon doesn't understand much of that because it's in this time period that has, God hasn't revealed that yet. And so he looks around in the natural course and he says, hey, we're all going to die. And so that's it. We're done, right? And so this phrase, it's better to be, you know, a, a live dog than a deadline. So what, what's going on is that a dog was the worst of all creatures. Sorry to break your heart and to really frustrate some of you, but dogs were mangy. Dogs were streets, street dogs. Dogs were avoided. They were like a pack of wolves, okay? I know your little puppy's cute, but not back then, okay? All right. And so dogs were the ones you avoid, They were the filthy animals. The lion was the proud, strong king of the jungle. And what he says is good. He says, you know what? I would rather be a live dog than a dead lion. At least I'm still alive, right? Um, I love theological books. I love commentaries. Uh, I love growing and learning. Some of my greatest theological commentaries are Charles Schultz's Peanuts and Bill Watterson's Calvin and Hobbes. Um, Because there's a tremendous amount of theology in those comic strips, and they're a lot easier to read. Um, But this is one of my favorites. Um, This is Calvin and Hobbes. Um, Do you think babies are born sinful, Calvin asks, that they come into the world as sinners? Hobbes says, no, I think they're just quick studies. (laughs) 
I think they're both true. Okay, we are born into this world centers. By the way, I don't know that everybody knows this, but do you know why they're called Calvin and Hobbes? This is John Calvin who wrote the Institutes, the Five Points of Calvinism, okay? Deep theologian. He was named after John Calvin. And if you ever study Calvin through the lines and the, the lens of theology, a lot makes sense, okay? And this is Thomas Hobbes over here, a philosopher that rejected that. And so it's kind of pitting uh, theology against philosophy. Now, now I've ruined Calvin and Hobbes for you. <laughs> um, but it's good. It's really good. Because the theologian would say that we're born sinful, and the philosopher would say, no, we just get that way. I think it's both. We are born sinful, and we flesh that out the rest of our lives. And so what do we do in a world that is sinful? How do we live in a broken world? When we have brokenness from birth inside of us and all around us, we flesh that out. And as the Bible says, the wages, the paycheck of our sin ends in death. Well, Solomon goes on in verses 5 to 8. The living at least know they will die but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, nor are they remembered. Whatever they did in their lifetime, loving, hating, envying, is all gone. Long gone. They no longer play a part in anything here on earth. So go ahead. Eat your food with joy. Drink your wine with a happy heart. For God approves of this. Wear fine clothes with a splash of cologne. <laughs> Sounds like a Chanel advertisement, right? You know, CK1. No, no, so... so um, Here's the deal. Solomon is basically saying, we get this one life. And whatever God has given you, man, enjoy that. Has he given you a meal? Eat it with gladness. Has he given you a drink? Drink it with joy. Uh, when you go to parties, dress up, wear some cologne. Now, that was particularly important back then when you put on white clothes to symbolize you know, your wealth or your prosperity or your joy. And you'd put cologne on because you really needed cologne, you know, back then without baths and showers, right? As a little note in college, that was one of my favorite verses. I would quote that one. And um, it was just like, hey, you know what? When you're in the middle of midterms or finals, just dress up and put some cologne on and walk around. You'll feel better, right? All right. What, what he's saying is, you know, sometimes let's be honest. Life is hard. Life is broken. Life is difficult. But in the middle of all of it, there are things God has given you. So learn to enjoy those. Learn to celebrate those things. Enjoy the life that God has given you. It's a gift to God. He goes on verses 9 to 10 saying, Live happily with the woman you love through all the meaningless days of life that God has given you under the sun. It's kind of like a backhanded compliment. Get married and have fun because it's all meaningless, right? <laughs> you, you, you wouldn't say that at a toast at a wedding, would you? The wife God gives you, or in this case the spouse God gives you, is your reward for all your earthly toil. Whatever you do, do well. I like that. Whatever you do, do well. Solomon is saying it is a depressing world. It is a broken world. It is a, a world filled with injustice. But in the middle of all of it, you can find joy. You can find God's purpose. And whatever you do, do it well. For when you go to the grave, there will be no work or planning or knowledge or wisdom. So he's saying, hey, you know what? You got a job? Man, enjoy that job. Are you married? Enjoy that marriage. Are you single? Enjoy that singleness. You know, you've got a hobby, you've got a plan, do that and do it all to God's glory. Live life to the fullest with purpose and joy, honoring your creator. As a comedian once said, I want to live this life with a smile so big that the mortician will have to carve it off my face when I die, right? It's like smile a little bit, have some fun with it. 
I love this as I think about the metaphor of the garden. Uh, God gave Adam and Eve the garden in Genesis 1 and 2, and, and he said, care for it, you know, manage the garden, tend Eden, garden Eden, and to, to, to care for it in such a way that it would grow and prosper. And I think in many ways, God gives us gardens to care for. For some, it is a marriage. For some, it is friendships, a working environment, a home, a family. Whatever garden God has given you, take care of it, nourish it, invest in it. They say that the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. I say the grass is always greener wherever you water it. So water it hard, pour into it. It's hard work. Life is hard, my friends. It's difficult. It's not easy. But invest in what's right. Make the most out of it. We were made to enjoy the life that God has given us and to cultivate the garden God gave us. In fact, I love the Apostle Paul when he says this in Colossians 3, work willingly at whatever you do. It echoes what Solomon is saying, as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward and that the master you're serving is Christ. So did your parents give you chores? Man, do it for the glory of God, right? Did your teacher give you an assignment? Do it for the honor of Christ. Does your boss give you work? Do it with a smile, knowing that you're serving Christ. We are serving one another. We're really serving Christ. I know you see your boss, you see your teacher, you see the person above you, and that's, that's the obvious one. And they may not even be nice when they do it and they assign it. It doesn't matter because ultimately your master is Jesus Christ and you're serving the Lord. And so do it with all your heart. Create something worthwhile with your life. Work at faithfulness. My, my first job, I shared that, was babysitting. You know, and I was, I was young, I was 12 and, you know, I just understood money and it's like, I'll do whatever for money, you know, and then you change diapers and you babysit kids and whatever. And I started to learn, I can enjoy this or I can hate it. If I enjoy it, it'll go a lot faster. So I started enjoying it. I started, you know, mopping floors and cleaning toilets in high school. And there's no fun in that, right? Until I decided I'm going to have fun in it because I I, want to clean toilets to the glory of God because I'm cleaning a toilet to glorify God and to get a paycheck, right? Pump gas? I used to pump gas. I'd, I'd go out there and I'd have a hum in my heart, sing, you know, pumping gas for people, wanting to serve people, check air, oil, things like that. All throughout my life, it's like, I want to be faithful, right? That's the perspective we should have. I don't know what God's given you, but he's given you something. And if he's given you a job, if he's given you family, given you friends, man, do that to his glory and honor him through that. Be faithful in your marriage. Be faithful in your community. Be faithful in your church. Be faithful in your parenting. Whatever it is, be faithful because you're serving Christ. Solomon goes on to say this in verses 11 and 12. I have observed something else. I have observed something else under the sun. The fastest runner doesn't always win the race, and the strongest warrior doesn't always win the battle. The wise sometimes go hungry, and the skillful are not necessarily wealthy. And those who are educated don't always lead successful lives. It is all decided by chance, by being in the right place at the right time. I don't like that. Sorry, I just thought you wanted to know that. I don't like that. I play cards with my family, play golf with my sons. Um, I I don't get dealt a great hand. Seth, I don't know why. You always seem to get dealt a great hand at golf. We're sitting there and I'm like, "That's, that's not fair. Why is it that you have jokers and I don't? I mean, this is, you know, there have been times I've wanted to give up, you know, but I'm an adult. So I just complain instead. Or I can enjoy it and go, you know what? I get to play cards with my sons, my family, you know? And it's not really about winning or losing. It's about the company you keep. You know, but, but life isn't fair. Some of you work hard and you're not going to get the raise. You're not going to get the promotion. 
Some of you are going to do your best at school and you're not going to be valedictorian. You're not going to get a 4.0. You're not going to do all those things. You're going to work so hard at something and it's not going to pan out. And you think you're going to be at the top and one day you end up at the bottom, right? It's like it doesn't seem fair. He says people can never predict when hard times might come. Like fish in a net or birds in a trap, people are caught by sudden tragedy. Sometimes no matter how hard we work, it won't work out the way we want. Life is predictable. God's timing may be perfect, but sometimes it's really inconvenient, right? It really is. And we wrestle with that pain and we struggle with that anxiety. And why isn't it, why isn't it coming on my schedule, God? Why isn't it delivering the way I think? Somebody once said, if you want to make God laugh, write out your plans and give them to him. Because he doesn't care. Because his plans are greater than our plans, and they're better than our plans. We work so hard to carve out an existence. A little side note here. It's kind of a weird experience, but I want to tell you about it. I was in my, one of my doctoral classes early on, and the professor, a theologian, who wrote big, thick books, he says, let's take a break. Let's take a break for 30 minutes. I'm like, that sounds good. He goes, but here's a 20-minute assignment. I'm like, well, that's not a break. He said, go out, walk into town, and just walk and observe things. And we were in Portland downtown and so walked around observed and came back and he goes so what'd you see we're like well we saw weird things we're in portland okay let's go deeper really weird things let's go deeper well this and this and this and after like an hour of conversation i'm like we saw everything and he's like i don't think you saw everything and and then we start getting deeper and deeper and he said so what were you walking on sidewalk does this apply to my doctorate? Because it sure doesn't sound very, you know, philosophical. He goes, it's really philosophical. What did you walk across streets? And all of a sudden, we just had this little moment where we're like, wait a minute. There's something in mankind. There's something in humanity. There's something in our Western culture that wants to conquer the earth, the sky, the land, and the sea. And think about this. None of us, none of us here have a dirt floor in our home. Why? Because we have a foundation that's been dug out of the earth and concrete's been poured. And we have a floor that rises above all that. We have concrete here on the ground and then carpet on top of that and you're sitting on a cushy little seat, right? We have found a way to master the earth. When I go to East Africa, people have dirt floors and they sweep the dirt and we're, oh, we're civilized. We would never do that, right? Really, are we civilized? Or are we just isolated from the reality of life? We create a comfort zone for ourselves. You know what? We have mastered the air. And I'm not just talking about flying in big cylinders up in the sky called airplanes, right? I'm talking about there's heat going on right now. There's air conditioning in our homes. We've controlled everything, even in our cars. We have little warmers in our seats, right? We control the earth, the sky. We control the land. We can cross it. We can go anywhere we want. And we think we're masters of our universe, but we're not. And as much as we try to control all those things, life interrupts our seeming sense of control. And we realize we're really being foolish because we can't control anything in life. Our neighbor passed away this last week. Our dear Janie, she was almost 95 years old. A sweet, sweet soul. Our neighbor crossed the street and for 10 years our family got to go over there and see her and enjoy some time with her. And yet, you know, most people won't live to 95. Maybe you'll live to 100, you know. Most people don't live past that. Most of us live to 70 or 80 or so. And even that's out of our control. Solomon reminds us of two things in this passage. One, 
Death is unavoidable. Death, my friends, is unavoidable. And number two, life is unpredictable. The Bible says we're all going to die. We know that. I was looking at the obituary of the the funeral home. I I, I did the service. I had the privilege of doing the service in the graveside. And um, and I, I looked and there were like four or five other funerals that day. Like, wow, it's a lot of death. It's a lot of graves. It's a lot of heartbreak. It's a lot of children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren that are weeping and mourning and then wondering why. And death is unavoidable. One day, one day, we will all pass away. Woody Allen famously quipped, I'm not afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. (laughs) But he will, right? You will be there at your death. Death is unavoidable, Solomon says. And number two, Life is unpredictable. It just doesn't work the way we plan. And man, that frustrates us and seems unfair. But my friends, death is not an accident. Death is an appointment. And life is not to be avoided. Life is a journey. In Hebrews 9, 27 and 28, the writer says, And just as each person is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment, So also Christ was offered once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. He will come again, not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to all who are eagerly waiting for him. Now, now here's why he's not going to deal with our sins, because they've already been dealt with on the cross, right? I mean, think about this, my friends. We have two opportunities for you today. We have communion over here on your left, my right. And when... I pray in just a few moments and we begin to sing. I'm going to invite those of you who know Jesus Christ to celebrate what he's done for you on your behalf by dying on the cross with communion. Jesus, on that night that he was betrayed, took this bread, piece of bread. He said, this is my body and this cup. He said, this is my blood. Drink it. Do these. Eat this in remembrance of me. As often as you do this, you're remembering my death until I come again. And so as a follower of Christ, we do this. And at Sunrise, we do it every week so that we are reminded that it's not our own effort or energy. It's not our own salvation. It's Jesus alone that did the work for us. And that's the biggest injustice, right? But we, I'll take that, right? because he died on our behalf. But not everybody in the room can honestly do that and should not honestly do that. In fact, they should go over here to your, to your right, my left, to the cross instead. Because there's only two destinations for you today, either the communion table, thanking God for what he's done, or the cross saying, God, I need you to do that in my life. Your forgiveness, I need it applied to my life. I need to receive your forgiveness. Because death is unavoidable. And life is unpredictable. And it'll frustrate you Or you can become a son and daughter of the Most High God and follow with whatever plan he wants and he'll get the glory out of your life. When I was younger, I used to play games with my grandma and grandpa, my aunt, when I was in Indiana at their house. And one of my favorite games was Monopoly because it appealed to the greedy heart that I had, have, excuse me. And um, and I remember the game and and I I got quite good at it because, you know, I would conquer and I was ruthless. And, you know, grandparents are like, whatever, they're suckers because they want you to win, right? I'm sure if they would have wanted to win, they'd have crushed that little boy, but they didn't. And so I would gather those, and I would get those, and I would gain those. And, I, you know, maybe you don't get park place or boardwalk, so you get the utilities. 
You get the railroads, you become a baron, and all of a sudden you start crushing people. And you get the slumlord homes down over here, and you buy those, and you rent them out expensively. And then you get a hotel you put on there. And, man, I was loving it. And you get the money. And when you're a kid, even fake money is like money, you know, money, money, money. And you stack the money, money, money up. And you get all these cards, and you're laying them out here. And it's like this great sense of pride. And, and you know, whether you win or lose, well, it's about winning, right? you got this thing. But no matter whether you win or lose, at one point the game is over. And you stack it all up and everything goes back in the pile. And there's nice, neat little places where everything goes in the box. And finally, the board goes in the box. And then the lid goes on the box. And the box is put away in the closet. And I was thinking about this this last week when I was at Janie's graveside. The family was showing up. We were carrying the casket out there. That one day, we're all going to go in a box. And people are going to say things about us. But ultimately, the lid of the box is going to be put on us. And we're going to be lowered into the ground. And as far as our earthly life goes, that's it. No matter what we've accumulated, no matter what we've acquired or what we've achieved, it's all going to go in that box. And at that moment, we will have already made our decision about eternity. And whatever we've done in this life will reverberate through the rest of eternity. Whether we've come to Christ for forgiveness and new life or whether we rejected him because, you know, we wanted to control our life. We won't have an option then because it's appointed unto us to die once and then to face the judgment. And so that's my question for you as we close the message. Death is unavoidable. It's not an accident. It's an appointment. And it will happen, and we don't really know when. But will you choose to live before you die? Because life is unpredictable. It's actually unmanageable as much as we try. And I hope, I hope, I hope you come to the communion table. But for some of you, my prayer is you come to the cross instead. Let's pray. Fathers, we think about Jesus. Man, you love us so much that you sent your son to die for our sins. That in spite of our sinfulness and rebellion, our brokenness, our waywardness, God, you loved us still and you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross for us, to rise again so that we would have faith in you and know that although this world will end, we will live again. And Father, I pray if we've not received that message, that that's what we do today, that we believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior and we receive him into our lives, that we confess with our mouth that he's our Lord. And, and Father, you say we'll be saved. And you enter into us and you declare us not guilty. You call us a son or daughter and you walk with us and you change us. And life is still hard, but you're not finished yet because one day there's an eternity. May we not reject you. May we not push you aside. But may we say yes to your invitation of love. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.